You know, it's called a local for a reason. It's because it's where the locals go. It's the cornerstone of the community, where you know everyone by name, or just have nicknames for ones you don't. Where we tell our stories and make up new ones. And it's here the Sunday leagues are really played. That's why it's called a local. So go and support yours, because your local serves more than just beer. Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. My name is Jack Lewis Evans. Cheers. Cheers. And my name is Sean Morley. is about beer. At the heart of the UK is a gaping psychosocial hole that is booze brimmed to burst. How did alcohol become Britain's one hobby? Why does drink pervade every aspect of our culture? Why is my dad's birthday card a drawing of a pint? Why does the local arts centre rely on the custom of two alcoholics? Why am I allowed to drink on the train and in the plane, but not on the bus? If we don't completely alienate everyone with this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by sharing it on social media or telling everyone in the smoking area about it while making too much eye contact and holding back sick. If you'd like to put some money on your tab and help keep the institution of the great British podcast alive, we'll stand you all kinds of bonus content and mini episodes over on patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. But only if you look over the age of 21. Fancy another? Let's lock and load. Landlord, another two milks. Do you want to go on the fruit machine? Yeah. What fruit do you want? Banana, please. Before we begin ragging on British booze culture, yeah, I think we should talk about its good aspects. Yeah, I think they're um, they're obvious. I think they're, they're transparently obvious. obvious. For example, have you seen the video entitled "British Lads Hit Each Other with Chair"? Yeah. In fact, I played the video game. The video game is very, yes, very, very good. Um, I mean, what do you like about it? What, why do you think that video is so powerful? I think that video shows um, sort of almost futuristic interpretation <laughs> of masculinity, where masculinity mm. has transcended not being gay while retaining being very violent. Yeah, I think it's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's heavily booze-fueled, right? This, that, 100%. That so for the, for the benefit of the listener who might not have seen this video, let's summarise the video. I mean, I recommend watching the video because either of our description will not suffice. Sean, absolutely feel free to interrupt me if I miss any key details. But in the video, British lads hit each other with chair. There's some British lads. Agreed? Yeah, agreed. Sorry, yeah, I'll ratify that. Yeah, and they are shirtless. Yeah, they're also they're also all pretty good looking, good they're bodies. They're pretty hench, they're pretty hench. Um, and they've got a buzz on from what seems to be day drinking. 
potentially just through day drinking, the, the acts that they get up to, mm. I could believe they've taken anything, but the day drinking seems to be a component. The day drinking is definitely key. They're around the back of a house, which is quite interesting because they are in the background. There's a garage door, mm. but it's the inside of a garage door, but they're not in a garage. It seems to be a wall with a garage door. What I like about them is they all look like hot lads. They all could be yeah, models, yeah, yeah. but the, the working classness of their environment could not be more overstated. It's like sloppily painted, bad brickwork. Yeah, 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 yeah. Little like it's that kind of alley that every regional dialect has a separate incoherent word for. <laughs> it just cuts between houses to nowhere. <laughs> well, I didn't think it looks like backyard to me. Do you think it's alley? Because why would there be a garage door to an alley? You know how northern terraced houses always just have these little alleys through? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, what yeah. they lead to is just random. Could be a front garden, could be like a thing that's a bit like a shed. It could be this like highly combustible bit of wood and no one knows who owns it, so no one upkeeps it. It's always just going to a random bit, like half a garage, the splintered aspect of what once was an inventor's little hut. The one by me, by my nans, used to lead to something we used to call the Rocket Park. Oh, and here we Rocket go. Park, actually a key drinking destination in my youth, was a park that looked, I think it must have been built in the 70s, and everything was rocket-themed. Seesaw, rockets. That's amazing. The slide, rockets. But it was all very crudely welded together in a way that didn't look like it was authorised by the council. Oh, so you think it's just like a Custom sort of a, sort of a Dr. Wito-style scientist made this for the kids? Yeah. And it was also just in the corner of a farmer's field. But it had That's bins. Really it awesome. had bins that people emptied, so it must have been on the books, shut down, long dismantled. I think gone. if a guy yeah. can make an off-grid rocket themed <laughs> theme park for the local you think kids, he can empty the bins. why can't they empty yeah, the bins? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it requires the same degree of thankless get up and go, doesn't it? <laughs> Reflecting on this park, I've become worried about the park. Anyway, I'm with you. Ginnels can go anywhere. They're Gillies. in. They're, they're around the back of somewhere. It's like a liminal space. They're smoking. Physically and cigarettes, they're smoking cigarettes. One of the lads is holding a chair, wielding a folded chair like a weapon, mm-hmm. like a like a wrestler. I think they're mimicking pro wrestling. They're mimicking pro wrestling, but actually they evoke the kind of late twentieth century drunken master kung fu film mm, of the like, um, like yeah, the kind of like Taoist monk yeah. who ends up fighting with their like three-legged stool in a bar brawl. Mm. That's what I'm getting from it. I don't think it's what they intend. I think they think they're all the Undertaker. Yes, that's that. <laughs> 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 so one of is holding a folding chair. Another topless lad smoking jeans. Chair boy's got um, shorts on, and this other guy jeans pops him a little kiss, a little smooch, mm. chugs vodka like it looks like half a bottle of vodka smashes the bottle on the floor in this like lads, 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 mega masculinity mode. Bends over, inviting his friend to whack him with the chair. Come on then. He whacks him with the folding chair twice. But like really, it looks like it goes wrong. So like the person doing the whacking the chair fucks it up. But also the victim looks like they're in pain and falls over into the shattered glass of the bottle. They just shattered and then gets back up and then invites a third hit. But on the third hit, the folding chair opens up. It's incredible. It is incredible. It's incredible. It is. It's like the modern orgy. Well, it's not an orgy. That's a different No, thing. but I mean, I feel like in terms of, you know how you can have an orgy of X and Y? Yeah. Oh, yes. It's like this hedonistic yeah, yeah, yeah. spectacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, would you imagine like 
like the aristocracy of the Roman Empire are like chaise lunges, <laughs> having grapes stripped on them. This is this is the orgy mm. that can only exist after Jackass, yeah. where you have to be in as much pain and pleasure. It's like if if Jackass was directed by Pinhead, it, nothing makes sense and everything hurts and it's incredible. The Marquis de Sade has visited. I think Newcastle is where it might be. Yeah. Um, Marquis de Sade has a handheld camcorder and he goes, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I think it's quite interesting because you said it's like the masculinity stuff in it's weird, isn't it? The smooch, you're like, oh, okay. But also the smooch is like, it's, it's sort of hyper straight to the point of like, is the smooch homophobic? Is the smooch like, it's funny to kiss my friend because gay sexuality is like so beyond imagining that it's humorous to me. The smooch is in the same category as whacking someone with the chair of, it is a performance of, I am so masculine, I am so straight, I can smooch. I don't disagree with any aspect of the analysis beyond, I think it's socially unhelpful to label it as homophobic Mm, because... yes. Because the levels of irony involved are the only ways that truly hard lads can become gay. <laughs> and I don't want to shut down that avenue. I don't want to close the garage like, door to that I level. I don't want to shut yeah, the yeah. garage door on, you know, a certain percentage of really hard lads who day drink in the alley should have access to homosexuality yeah. via extremely layered hypermasculine irony. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. for me to gatekeep that. Hazing. <laughs> Is, is a way of coming out that's helpful to the laddest of lads. It, for a small minority, that ends up being their lifeline to a different sexuality. A slither slice of the pie. But And then also there's the kind of, uh, was part of its virality a different love than perhaps you or I have? And it is the love of the middle class watching the oiks hurt each other. I think that the secret spice of its virality was of non-British cultures discovering it mm. and then going, hang on, is this what British culture is? And then the British going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, they've realised it's not Mr. Darcy. Yeah. yeah. This is it. This is it. And I think it shows in a strange way the best and the worst of it. The other booze fueled video that can only exist because of British booze culture is the one that's... It has various names, but it's something like typical British pub and it sort of begins with a, uh, a blonde woman dancing looking at the camera there's like this music which I think is like karaoke Elvis but it's going like oh, two, three, four, two, three. and then there's like a gentle confused old man trying to like navigate the dance floor and a just man with a blank expression and a green woolly hat marching to the hook two, three, four. and it's like just pure you know like you turn up as a comedian to a gig and you're like this is going to be bad yeah, there is no reality that everyone here relates to that then you could make jokes about. Because normally a comedy, <laughs> if you want to make any kind of broad universal theory of what comedy is, it's about introducing absurdity yeah. to the, to reality. Yeah. But if people here have ended up in such a liminal, surrealist space anyway, how does that collision of normal and strange mm. have any effect on them? How can comedy work on someone who lives in like the sixth dimension (laughs) (laughs) and they're all in their own for that reason (laughs) yeah booze has unlocked their third eye but their third eyes are all pointed elsewhere away from each other and this is in part why people like us Mm. and 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 the rest of the arts world don't like excessive drinking because it embarrasses us because it takes people the promise of art of what it can do to your psyche cannot compete with drinking to oblivion (laughs) 
It can't. It can't. Because even if you think of the thing that touched you, moved you, or the most surrealist, bizarre, taking out of yourself, the things that changed you the most, doesn't have the same hammer-like impact as an absolute (laughs) all-night bender, and you just woke up a bit different. (laughs) You woke up and you've kissed all your friends and your back's been smashed in with a folding chair. (laughs) I'm different now. A play, a movie, just can't do it. I don't remember what I've done, but I've gone viral in a video that I can watch as someone who does not recognize myself in this recording. Yeah. I found out from a viral video of me that I'm gay now. (laughs) (laughs) Beer can do that. (laughs) I think pubs should sell tickets. Why? So that you don't have to buy any beer. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there is a sort of a ticket to be in the pub. Yeah. And it's having a pint in front of you. On the table. You that's can have a ticket. pint of Pepsi Max. I mean, that's, that's a lot can, of Pepsi. You can, you can. I do think that... You can have the, water. They'll give you, you water. I mean, you can't, really. Not if you want to not feel scrutinised. I have been criticised by the landlords of pubs for having water. Mm. I've been criticised once while I was on stage doing a comedy gig inside a pub. Yes. And I got heckled for drinking water by the landlord of the pub while I was performing in his bar. Your performance was bringing in customers. No, it was not. (laughs) (laughs) That 100% wasn't true. My relationship with alcohol has changed because of performing in so many alcohol-based environments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you're going into them regularly for work, okay, well, either... I stop drinking alcohol each time I go into them or I just become an alcoholic. Which is a choice a lot of comedians make. Honestly, it cuts it cuts the whole culture of comedy right down the middle. Yeah. <laughs> but also, there are just those times where you want to meet up with and spend time with a friend. A friend comes to your city. Mm. They're not going to be there very long. Oh, I've not seen you in ages. Should Let's go, go to... Um, but it's like yeah. two o'clock. It's like two o'clock. I don't want to have a drink. I don't want to have a big beer. But then you sit in this pub, everyone, people are drinking mm-hmm. and you're like, we're using up a table here. I can see someone at the bar looking at us. How much lemonade do I want to go through to be like an equivalent of someone who was doing hard day drinking? Like, shall I buy a sandwich? How do I just give you money so that you don't give me the side eye? Let me just buy a ticket. you got to get over feeling bad about drinking water. I feel bad about being in a busy pub. Or a nice pub. Yeah. And I like you know, I, I feel this whole thing of like, I don't want the pubs to go under. I'm not an enemy of the pub. I'd like to <laughs> right. give you money, right? Yeah, I don't want to yeah, sit yeah. here and use up space. Because I know as nice as you are and as kind as you are to me about it, if I'm not putting money here and I'm using up space, mm-hmm. especially if that's something that multiple people do, a lot of people don't drink but want to go to the pub. Yeah. We're just a kind of sucking on their profits. We're just sort of using up the space. <laughs> Right, and I'm I'm happy to give you. No, and other people who work in the pub, apart from the owner, give a shit about that. And the owner roams around. <laughs> no, there are so many pubs. Like the there are so many pubs where evil. all the bar people are sound, but yeah. there's a person up in the office mm. and they roam. 
They are just a random encounter. It can happen at any time. And they're not going to want you drinking water. And I'm also, I'm happy. I'm happy to put some money behind the bar, Mm. but I don't want to consume any of your products. The products I want is that here is a house for the public that I can sit in and talk to my friend. Yeah. I'm happy to like pay my tax towards that. I don't want to drink a pint of lemonade. (laughs) That's too much sugar. That is a lot, isn't it? Yeah. I actually just want some water, but I don't want to have to have all these thoughts in my head. So let me just give you a ticket's worth. It's the pub's interesting in it because it's like the last place you can go in a country decimated by austerity. Not that austerity like created British drinking culture, but it is kind of depressing that that's like the social space. Austerity and also I think the lockdowns. Yeah. And doing a lockdown in a country with a kind of out of control drinking culture mm. just sent it into hyperdrive. Like, I think a significant amount of alcoholism within the United Kingdom yeah. had its origins in no other social support other than getting the cans in, which is the default for, you know, men. Lads, lads, lads. <laughs> Get on the cans. Lads, lads, lads. Tinnies. And also just um, boomers like, there's a generational thing, isn't there? The Gen Zs aren't drinking. The boomers love drinking. And the boomers love drinking because even if you wanted to talk about mental health, there was no way to uh, get any support. They hate their jobs. So it's like society's acceptable coping mechanism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also the pub leavers itself as the place to go to talk to people. Yeah. Especially if you have like <laughs> a dinosaur's understanding of like what a marriage or a relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> might be like. Mm-hmm. You need like some kind of countervalent man culture to go into, which is just the boozer. And also in general, what is British culture? Boozing down the pub. Yeah. A lot of British people are depressed, miserable, unfulfilled people. Yeah. need to escape and numb the trouble in their head. There's like yeah. a sort of mass psychosocial void at the heart of Britain and the void is filled with booze. The keep calm and carry on poster should have a Boddington's on it. <laughs> <laughs> to truly reflect what that's advising you do. What's the best way of keeping calm and carrying on? Just get tanked. Just get absolutely tanked. Do you know, like, every city in the country has, like, either an area or a big street that is, like, the release valve for Mm. everyone on there. The area that you do not go on a Saturday night because something will happen. And it's also, like, we're talking about it as, like, a way to calm down, but it doesn't calm people down. People go bonkers. Like, those streets... And, again, you see this a lot as a comedian or just someone who doesn't drink where you're, like, it's half 11 on a Saturday night and I'm going down this high street and this is Mm. wild. I always feel sorry for people who work in like kebab shops. Yeah. (laughs) Just what they're seeing. And they develop this like horrible relationship with the, with the pub and club area because they need to be there. This is their like entire week's profits, but they are going to get abused in the process. So they've got this, this horrible relationship, but it's absolutely economically necessary. Do you want to hear my um, galaxy brain take on why it acts as a release valve, even though people are going absolutely wild? Yes, go on. You know, there's no meditative culture in the United Kingdom. Absolutely not. There's no point where people manually and consciously decide to just exist, let their brain relax and not think about anything and just experience the world. Yeah. However, an absolutely killer hangover is kind of close. 
<laughs> in that moment, uh, you're not thinking. You're not thinking about the future or the past or anything. You're just experiencing the sensations in your body. Is it at the moment just a headache? Yes, but that counts. Yeah. Dehydration, nausea, fatigue. That yeah. is zen. That is as zen as Brits get. Yeah. Achieving a disconnection from the ego via deleting memories from the previous night. Yeah. You can't think about yourself when there is nothing but blackness in your memories. Yeah, and that's the problem, right? Because you think about you're this one continuous causal chain of events, mm. right? And that can build up this anxiety on this one person, on this one trajectory through time and space. Suddenly, the link is broken. What happened last night? I don't know. I'm a new being. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new starting off point. <laughs> what better form of escapism than escaping your memory of anything you've done? That is the highest form of escapism. Workplaces or even just social groups, a topic of conversation that comes up is like, oh, when shall we next go out? Mm. Or reminiscing about times that they went out and someone got really, really drunk and did something bonkers. Yeah. That's like fundamental to British workplace culture. I think a lot of people have really bad personalities. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so that's true. The veneer of drunkenness yeah. acts as like a blanket excuse for why you can't just socialise. Mm. Uh, sorry, I'm just a bit drunk. And if I'm not drunk, I'm not even out. I'm not socialising. Only, only go out to drink. But on the flip side is the people who get really bamboozled by you're not drinking because that's their whole thing. They can't imagine socialising or having a personality without getting wasted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fuck. And the other fuck thing about not pubs generally, I think of a, certainly clubs and some pubs on certain nights is the fact that you have to have a bouncer because alcohol is such a fucked thing that you need to have paid people that's job is to like physically restrain things when it gets out of control they're protecting low wage workers yeah. and the, you know other you know, people that are in there from all kinds of whatever fuck stuff can happen physical yeah. assault sexual assault verbal abuse harassment all of which as soon as alcohol gets involved the likelihood of those things just goes you know it just zooms mm -hmm. upwards so you have to employ someone to like protect customers and the workers in those places and these are the social places that we have yeah like if you were to defamiliarize yourself with alcohol because we've all been brought up with alcohol yeah. i think we all coveted the first pint until oh, we yeah. got to taste yeah, yeah. it and it was like oh this is this is foul tasting it's fucking <laughs> horrible i mean that's like i get because i've gone I, I don't really drink that much um and like there's all these like i don't know social critiques of drinking or whatever but for me it's like i just don't particularly like drinking the taste of it makes me it makes me wince it makes the muscles of my face contort into something from the works of picasso how am i drinking a nine volt battery mm -hmm. because you do you know when you're, you're younger you're like oh i want to be able to drink because that's what adults do and that's like reflected in the world you're in and the media and then drinking like yeah, this tastes bad and i did that thing which i do a lot of going oh everyone must just be pretending this is okay or they enjoy it i think after a while, you realise they're not pretending. They've just decided to enjoy it. Yeah, and then shortly after that, you decide to enjoy it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely decided to enjoy it. And the only thing that got me out of that headspace was just not drinking for long enough mm. that I'd forgotten that that was a decision I made rather than how I naturally felt about the liquid. Yeah. <laughs> so when yeah, I had yeah, more, yeah. I'm like, oh, this isn't nice. Um, like imagine someone made, there's a new lasagna 
And everyone loves it, right? It's so nice. This lasagna is so good. It actually doesn't taste very nice at all, right? But when you do have it, you slightly sort of disassociate from things and you can't think as critically. And the places that sell this lasagna, they are so swarmed. It's like just wall-to-wall people stood together. The people swarm. They're having to sell it like in um, school cafeteria uh, gastronome outfits <laughs> passing the lasagna through. There's lasagna pipes that they're pumping, pumping lasagna out of. Yeah, and in fact, what happens is you come up, you've got your, you've, uh, they give you a little rag and you just clean the end of the pipe, you stick your mouth around the pipe and it shoots a lasagna down your gullet at max speed, which is good <laughs> because you don't want to taste it, right? The lasagna tastes rank. And then you just become a little bit less able to think about what you're doing and um, you can't think as critically and your like inner ear and balance is off. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you want. There is another risk here, which is the other lasagna eaters. They're in the same <laughs> position. So there's going to be loads of fights, yeah, yeah, yeah. loads of people screaming, loads of people with lasagna around their mouth, like making out. Smashing bowls of lasagna on the floor and everyone cheers. I just, I, I think if, if, if something new with all of alcohol's properties were to descend on society now, people would be like, Mm. <laughs> come on and that's the thing isn't it it's like the his- history of it of alcohol has been part of british culture for literally centuries if you look at lots of drunk people and you look at lots of i don't know high people from cannabis or people on mdma yeah. the drunk people are the most fu- like that drug is clearly having the most fucked effect on those people because of the history of it of it's just a baseline whereas other drugs have a more countercultural context they're, they're like something that's new or different or alien whereas alcohol's just normal East culture it's like bullet point one on british culture the extent to which that is a thing is like binge drinking not just drinking binge drinking you do your week oh, of yeah. work where you have to do what the boss says and you have to perform as expected in a workplace and interact with customers as expected and then consumer thing where inhibitions are numbed you escape you are able to stop thinking (laughs) yeah (laughs) like the the main thing it does is it just kind of dulls your experience yeah (laughs) it's like just trying to take a nap (laughs) while you're awake (laughs) (laughs) yeah but also it's like alcohol is ubiquitous around the world Mm -hmm. but i mean i'm at muslim countries excluding but yeah yeah possibly still some forms but britain's relationship with that alcohol is unique on the globe and it's it's so mind-boggling when you realize like you speak to people from other cultures and either they've come to the uk and they're not familiar with binge drinking or they like walk down you know the big street on a saturday night mm-hmm. and they're like oh wow what's happening someone won a sports game is that something happening <laughs> so no 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 no, no no you, you should see how it ramps up if someone wins a sports game <laughs> this, this is its standard this is normal mode and then not doing that the social exclusion of of not partaking in that makes you strange makes you an outlier once something is so normalized opting out is is it's like um vegetarianism veganism the consumption of meat is so normalized that not doing it is interpreted as like preachy or soapboxy yeah, yeah, yeah. simply to not participate there will be questions because the the people hearing that can only interpret that as you think i'm bad you think i'm an idiot yeah 
<laughs> Explain yourself. Yeah. You're an idiot, actually. But do you know, the people I can't get my head around are the people who are teetotal, but nevertheless hang around with on the fringes of groups that are drinking. <laughs> that is a hell <laughs> that I cannot, I cannot deal with. It's, it's suddenly like you're just hanging around talking to children. Hmm. I can't bear the idea that I'm talking to someone and I'm already having a hard time because they're not just suddenly not able to understand things like they could before. But it's like, I'm having a conversation, I'm the only person who's going to remember it. Kind of what's the point? I never think of normal conversations as being like, oh great, I'm recording some of my thoughts as memories of someone else's brain. It's never the appeal to me. But when it's gone, I'm like... Suddenly, yeah, it changes things, doesn't no it? No interest in this. Yeah, I must log some of my thoughts in your <laughs> in your grey matter. Alcohol is quite expensive as well, isn't it? Obviously, the drink itself is expensive, but then the yeah. you know getting around, getting into places. When people f- say the figure of how much it cost them. Their yeah. night out last night cost me this, and when people say it's like in the three figures, mm. I'm like, that's mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fully blown my mind. Yeah. I c- People can spend money on experiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're spending money on experience you can no longer recall. It's <laughs> it's like going to a restaurant where you have to vomit at the end. I, mm. I you're not retaining the thing you've paid for. <laughs> None of yeah. that's in there. Your body just hurts now. It's and, not in your mind what you've done. <laughs> and that money is is another reason why it's so fundamental. Is there's a giant industry that depends on this. Like mm. there are thousands and thousands of of biz, of, of workers whose whose jobs depend on these companies making money. So it's, it's like alcohol is an essential part of the capitalist market. Advertising and marketing strategies are designed to make you want to consume booze. Incidentally, alcohol advertising never really contains anyone who's drunk. It's either people, you know, people having a generic nice time and then it's, yeah. you know, because they're drinking moderately and you have to enjoy everything in moderation. That's fucking every advert about anything says. Or it's just like really abstract, like a horse surfing. Yeah. Like loads of advertising um, does that. They want to obscure the reality of what you're advertising to people and what you want to consume. If you want, you want to make the thing you're doing seem good and seem like cool. There's a massive profit motive there. And that's also why government fails to act on certain things because it's just a, it's a giant lobbying group but also I'm, I'm not saying you know then you get bonkers ideas of like well the way to address binge drinking in this country is to make it more expensive yes yeah, so just rich people only rich people can uh, and it just mean that now sports. alcoholism which is absolutely rampant yeah. in the united kingdom yeah it not only like destroys your liver but it's going to send you like onto the streets you're going to you're going to default on your rent payments the people who are alcoholic who are addicted yeah, yeah, yeah. to the substance they will pay whatever the price is mm. So it's not going to help them. The actual the actual people most affected by no the it's, huge alcohol industry. Yeah, and nor like you know um, controls on it because I always think like France, where you can drink from really young age, does not have the same fuck drinking culture we do. So I think having the older drinking age is part of that of like you know the build up to the 18th birthday of like oh I can't wait to drink and then I'm going to go bonkers. Yeah. that's definitely part of that. I think basically liberalism towards so many things of having a less control of what people are doing and how people are doing it, but more regulation over the fucking predatory capitalist behaviour. Yeah. That's what you need to do to help people. If everyone in the United Kingdom who drinks mm. drank according to health regulations, like health recommendations... Oh, yeah, no one's not. The alcohol industry would lose over a third of its yearly profits. Fucking hell. It requires alcoholism. It has exactly the same economic model as, like, a gacha game or Candy Crush or anything... Mm. About 4% of the people who drink account for one third of national alcohol consumption. That's fucked. The alcoholism is not 
by any means an unintended side effect. It is not only the point, the production of alcoholics is required for the alcohol industry to sustain itself. Is it something like 17 million days are lost, working days a year, to people just having hangovers in the UK? Wouldn't be surprised. Like 2022, there was like 2.5 million working days lost to strikes. And look at the concern mm. of like, oh, strikers, striking workers, all that impact. Binge drinking, having way more impact. It's making alcohol businesses and alcohol adjacent businesses big money. But then the people doing that drinking are either not rocking into work because they're hung over or they're turning up at work fucked. We need to get these drunks back in the factory. (laughs) 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 Pulling random levers. I don't even work here. (laughs) Imagine if they had to... Imagine that that became like the government line though of like... Uh, they started approaching hangovers in the same way they approach workers' demands for paying conditions. Yeah, yeah, I mean, people are taking a substance which is going to, I mean, as well as everything else, lower your life expectancy and everything yeah, else. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, surely being dead is quite a non-productive state of being. <laughs> being in the hospital with liver failure. Yeah, really hard for me to work in the call centre today. I'm afraid I'm jaundiced. <laughs> well, it does fuck you up though, doesn't it? Cardiovascular issues, digestive issues, injuries from being pissed. There was quite a big, like, there was a big tabloid push to, like, find a way in which, like, the, the whole little bit of red wine, though, a little uh, bit of red yeah. wine is actually anti-carcinogenic, which I think has now been, like, debunked. Mm. But um, uh, some health way, some kind of wonkish interpretation of health statistics to be like, did you know, actually, if you only have a half pint of beer, but it's only on a Thursday, it gives you really, really good lung capacity. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, no, it's obviously, you're you're taking spirits and alcohol and ethanol into your body. It's not good. Mm. Do you know more people drink more alcohol in the presence of drink-aware posters? (laughs) That makes, of course they do. I don't 100% completely know why. There was a study done on it. Being naughty, people like to be naughty. No, 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 because here's what I believe. Mm. I believe drinking culture perpetuates itself. Yes. So if you go into a pub, you look around and you go, okay, everyone's sort of drinking here, I'll drink too. And if you see a drink aware poster, you know, ah, the culture here is to drink until you go Looney Tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in order to fit in, I need to drink so much I get hit by a bus. <laughs> drink aware posters do that. What the posters signify is we're a culture, we're a country where you we're cannot control yourself. And so you see that and you're like, okay, to be normal, <laughs> to be a normal person, yeah. I'm getting poisoned. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love how people even say, what's your poison? And like yeah. a little funny thing of being like, I know this is poison. I know what's your poison? This is bad for me. What's your poison? Yeah, yeah we'll poison ourselves. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to damage my liver. The English have always loved to chug a cauldron of slurry. In the 12th century, William of Malmesbury wrote... Drinking is a universal practice, in which occupation they passed entire nights as well as days. They were accustomed to eat until they became surfeited, and drink until they were sick, chunder in the cab home, and wake up to find they'd whatsapped the word fuck to their boss. The Brits crave a wee snifter, and where they go, booze follows in their wake. 
The export of distilled spirits were integral to Western European imperialism. Britain went fully sea mode at an era when Western European distilleries were pumping out huge quantities of spirits. As European boats poke and prodded at Earth's shores looking for people to exploit, early trading arrangements with foreign and indigenous communities were a way to offload spirits to what would eventually become European colonies. These cheap spirits foisted upon native communities would have devastating social consequences, could leave people dependent on European merchants, subsequent addiction or alcoholism problems would weaken a society that might actually want to be at its best to resist the onset of colonisation. And of course the drunkenness provides the Europeans a justification for the enforced servitude of their colonial subjects. Boats and trains brought fire water to all corners of the globe, requiring thirstier and thirstier gobs. The creation of binge drinking cultures became the logic of empire. Many colonial societies had racially segregated drinking spaces, so the colonial subjects couldn't see that their oppressors were also getting shit-faced and vomiting vibrant slurry across the tavern floor. As such, many anti-colonial resistance movements developed temperance efforts, such as in Ireland, India, Ghana, Cherokee, Native Americans, as people saw that the culture of alcoholism was a form of colonial social control. However, by this time, the creation and sale of alcohol was often so embedded in the national economy that countries were unable or unwilling to transition away from it. Their country had become the pub. Cheers. However, the UK's current binge culture isn't part of that same continuity. In fact, gulping habits dropped off hard in the early 20th century because Hitler dropped a big bomb on all the pubs. Post-war habits were significantly milder than those at the beginning of the century. But that all changed with the introduction of a plucky German beer. Heineken refreshes the parts what other beers cannot reach. Carlsberg, probably the best lager in the world. I bet he drinks calling Black Label. Britain taxed alcoholic drinks based on their strength, so this weaker German beer was imported en masse, marketed as a lighter, cheaper, more refreshing beer that you could drink at lunch. Huge marketing campaigns across the 70s and 80s transformed a German beer brewed in Denmark, the Netherlands and Belgium into a pillar of British identity. Supermarkets played a significant role positioning the tinnies, the multi-pack of cans, as something that could and should be part of the weekly shop, combined with cheap new supermarket wines, brought a new home drinking culture to women whose experience of entering traditional drinking environments was being told to fuck off by half a dozen indistinct forms sitting motionless in a cloud of pipe smoke. But binge drinking only goes into overdrive with the capture of late 20th century youth culture and Thatcher's war on having a big laugh. You see, rave culture invented a new kind of pint, which was the size of a tic-tac and granted its user the irresistible urge to rub their cheek on their friend's jacket. This new hobby was squashed by Margaret's gigantic shoe. A nascent rave culture transitioned into the joyless legitimacy of licensed nightclubs, pushing a new line of drinks to appeal to the booze-skeptic youths who loved to have a little dance. Alcopops were sweet, laced with caffeine so you could stay up late. Lambrini and sweet cheap perry marketed like a wine. Vodka and mixers become a dominant drink for young drinkers who've already been captured by the soft drinks market, want to have a grown up night out and think beer tastes like ass. 
While it may feel like Britons are driven by an ancestral drive to tank themselves shitless and walk diagonally into the road every Saturday night, our modern binge drinking culture is younger than many of our parents. It was an economic decision by drinks manufacturers to be a dominant force in all of our recreational activities, and a political decision by Thatcher's government to get kids off the bad drugs and onto the drugs that are made by donors of the Conservative Party. The UK's alcohol lobby is incredibly powerful. In UK Parliament, there are organisations called all-party parliamentary groups. These are cross-party organisations that any MP can join if they're interested in whatever that topic is. There's one for cats, there's one for sleep, there's one called Tidy Britain, there's even one for sucker punches. You shouldn't sucker punch, a sucker punch can kill someone. The last tweet on their Twitter account is them telling off Will Smith in an open letter. And there's one for beer. And its funding history is a matter of public record. Marston's, Asahi, Budweiser, Heineken, Green King, Stonegate pubs. It's smaller now, but during the 2010 to 2015 government, half of all MPs in Parliament were members, with money coming directly from the alcohol industry to buy FaceTime, meetings, consultations with members of Parliament. The chairman of Cobra Beer is still a serving peer in the House of Lords. The previous chief executive of the civil service got that job despite being paid a six-figure salary by beverage corporation SAB Miller. The revolving door between MPs and the brewery industry, combined with an overt influence on policy decisions, makes any kind of national regulation on the alcohol industry nearly impossible. One of the last big policy interventions on alcohol sales, the 2011 Public Health Responsibility Deal, that's where we got Challenge 21 from, that's where you get content unit labels, that's where you get the huge increase in drink aware campaigns. This set of policy proposals was constantly and massively criticised by public health officials because of concerns that it was being influenced by the alcohol lobby. In the end, the Institute for Alcohol Studies boycotted it, the British Medical Association also boycotted it, the Royal College of Physicians refused to maintain their partnership with it. Later, Cancer Research UK pulls out, Alcohol Research UK pulls out, the co-chair of the Responsibility Deal Alcohol Network pulls out of the Public Health Responsibility Deal. By the end, 12 of the 15 representatives left involved are direct employees of the alcohol industry. The Department of Health funded an independent review into the PHRD that concluded that of all the interventions proposed, they were all the ones that researchers knew would not do anything to change or affect alcohol consumption. And on top of that, the government didn't even meet all of the pledges that it was proposing. Currently, any actually effective regulations upon an alcohol industry in any country would be attacked by the proponents of free trade. You would be in violation of some free trade agreements with one of the international trade pantheons like the World Trade Organization, the European Commission. Algeria had to lift a ban on alcohol imports to join the WTO. Vietnam got in trouble with the WTO for its tax policies on spirits. The European Commission challenged the high taxes on alcohol in Ireland. The Swedish government was forced to overturn a ban on alcohol advertising in magazines. And there are international alcohol lobbying groups that are boasting that they are influencing these policies. SAB Miller, now called AB in Bev, is an alcohol umbrella corporation. It owns over 400 beers, including Bex, Budweiser, Corona, Stella. The front page of its website says, on a smooth gold black gradient, our purpose is to dream big, to create a future with more cheers.
AB InBev works directly with the British government to make former colonial states adopt the alcohol laws that benefit them. They worked directly with then Foreign Secretary William Haig in 2011 to get India to deregulate its alcohol market to the tune of an additional $80 million. In Sudan, the UK Department for International Development gave AB InBev a million dollars to replace their barley imports with the local crop sorghum imported from Cameroon and Dia Geo, another booze multinational, a quarter of a million to do the same thing. But Dia Geo is based in London and AB InBev at this time is based in Woking. So the Department of International Development calling this a win for shorthold farmers in Cameroon who can sell more sorghum, AB InBev's own presentation to their investors described this as the UK government using the International Development Fund to give millions to a corporation based down the road. And so for even poorer countries in the global south, they are absolutely at the mercy of these corporations. An analysis published in 2010 discovered that for Lesotho, Malawi, Uganda and Botswana, AB and Bev wrote their actual fucking laws. They authored their alcohol policy relating to its sale and its regulation. In some cases, the company's policy and issues manager is listed just right there on the document as the author of the laws. So while for the UK, this predatory binge drinking culture is a modern trend, for victims of the British Empire, it is a tradition going back hundreds of years. Cheers. Hey, cheers. So obviously doing comedy, you're hyper aware that the economic justification for like any the arts gig. events you're doing, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like the it's wet sails the behind yeah. the bar. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you're putting on anything, you need to make sure the bar is happy because the bar owns, you know, the roof above your yeah. head. But even without a roof, right, music festivals, all those artists, all those big fees, ticket prices, sure, go some of the way. It's the wet sails. Yeah. People there are getting tanked. Even like, you notice how much like a glass of wine costs at a theatre, even like in the high arts, the wet sales are very significant to the economic justification <laughs> yeah. for us being so able to do anything. Art, theatre, comedy, music depends on having an audience that's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, structurally yeah, yeah. incentivized to create that. Like early in my career, I got to the point where I was emceeing uh, weekend gigs at clubs where, you know, people are in on Groupon's. Uh, mm-hmm. and like stags and hens, those gigs, I mean, they're, you know, they're an exaggerated worst case scenario of it, but wow, that's hard. And that's not, it completely, then it shapes what you do because the incentive for the, the gig needs to get people tanked up in order to be profitable. What you're doing with your performance has to cater to that audience. So that, yeah. you know, what you're doing, you, your work you're creating is then shaped by what they, that audience is going to respond to. So up. you have to make <laughs> performances that can be consumed by people who cannot, you know, talk in complex sentences anymore, <laughs> right? They're talking yeah. in like single clause sentences and on top of that, you can't understand what they want. That's who is being catered to yeah. by all the bread and butter from, from indie art shows mm-hmm. right up to massive music festivals. Yeah. The rest of our culture is beholden to alcohol. So even when you're moving away from like alcohol specific yeah. culture, like the nightclubs, like the pubs, and you're trying to do something else, you're trying to go to a poetry night. The poetry night is here 
because they believe they mm. can bring people to this bar. And that's Everything how is absolutely beholden to it. Yeah. In order to even just be in a space, in order to be in a space, it has to appeal to people who can sell those people alcohol. Otherwise, you do dry gigs. Mm. The money on that is so incredibly tight that ticket prices are going to be Bonkers. inordinately high. So yeah. it's going to price loads of people out. It suddenly becomes like this reified middle-class space, which is why, like comedy for parents yeah, yeah is yeah. an incredibly middle class space there's no comedy for for children happening in working class Mm-mm. places because without the wet sales the yeah. ticket price goes too high so you cannot then market dry gigs and of course that means like muslims or people who don't drink alcohol for one of many number of reasons oh you're just on the outside of culture now completely on the outside looking in i mean you can go there you can hang out Everyone around you is very drunk. Boozing has been so central to everything. It's tendrils. Look at it from like a kind of patriarchy angle of like men are expected to excessively drink as a display of masculinity. Yeah. Women are drinking too, but they're, and then they're around these men and then they're at greater risk of objectification at the low end and potential harm at the bleaker end. But then that's also drinking is the places, places people drink is like a typical place for like a first date. Yeah. Do you want to go for a drink? Or where where people meet people is in these places where everyone's pissed and then never mind the effects that has on, you know, you're 18, you start drinking, you start going out. The effects that's going to have on like people's understanding of consent, for example. The, the culture around, you know, relationships and meeting people that form when the only conception you have of a place you can meet someone is like at the nightclub at half one in the morning. That then informs <laughs> yeah. like your choices for yeah. romance. Yeah, it's going to entrench in your conception of, you know, having a kiss, the worst and most toxic behaviours, because it's wrapped up in the masculinity of drinking to excess yeah, yeah, in yeah. the first place. And everyone's touching everyone else as well, weirdly, mm. trying to get you out of the way, which is weird. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go past someone, but in order to go past someone, I'm going to creepily touch their back. And it's all dark. Yeah, yeah. You know, just, it's so entrenched that some of this stuff becomes hyper explicit. Mm. The um, nightclub corporation in Sheffield... Yeah, Corp, Jesus. Quad Vods. I'm not sure if they still do it, but definitely for a very long time, Mm. they did a school disco night where they encouraged 19-year-old girls. They're getting free if they're wearing, yeah, they're wearing like school uniforms. It's fucked up. You have to really market this to young women who can come into these areas which are not safe Mm. because of their own volition, a lot of them would not want to go there. Again, you come back to, well, this place requires a bouncer. This place yeah. requires its own special kind of cop. This place needs privatised policing that we have to pay for and are willing to. Yeah, because we understand. Because we make yes, it back they on need, the wet sets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> never, mind working these, never mind working these jobs. That's a hard job. They're all awful. Generally working in a bar, working on a bar in a club. I, I, let's take one night in, in, uh, in Rill, which was a particularly bad night I had years ago, where I saw a guy's brain... I saw a guy get thrown down the stairs and his head cracked open and I saw his brain. I saw brain through a sky. I saw like, a look, it's fucked. Sorry, I should have put some sort of warning on that. <laughs> that really... <laughs> I saw oh a guy's brain. God. Um, yeah. Every now and then my friends was there would go like, remember when we saw a guy's brain? Yeah, it's fucked up. And that was a fight that was broken up by a bouncer guy who just kept talking about how he'd been to Japan to learn ninjutsu. Mm-hmm. But then the same night we were trying to get home, we were at this taxi rank in Rill and this guy, and this is even, you know, it's like a small town, this isn't a sea. We got a taxi, taxi turns up, 
And then this guy, totally pissed, in a cast, but one of those casts that's like scaffolded onto your rib cage. So his arms okay. are up like a wing and he's in this cast. And he's like, this is my taxi. I'm like, well, no, we've, we're just, we're by the taxi ramp, but taxis have stopped because it's 3 a.m. or whatever. This is, this is our taxi, we've called it. Uh, and he got really angry that he couldn't get in a taxi. But the taxi driver's just like, no, no, this is, this is their taxi. And then he started punching the taxi. Mm. And my friend Paul had to kite him like a Dark Souls enemy around the taxi as the other three of us got in the car. And he's then, not punching with the casted arm. He's punching with the casted arm, that's correct. <laughs> um, so, no, no, because the cast's like really strong. It's fucked up. He's yeah, punching yeah. with both arms. He's punching with both arms. When you're arms, in a cast is, like that, often yeah, you're yeah. In, it puts you in an automatic punching motion. Yeah, so you yeah, might yeah. Think, you He's know, ready to punch. Half, half the words don't fall We're me. assuming it's an injury. He might have done that as like an upgrade. Mm, yeah, can I reinforce my punching <laughs> right. arm yeah. on the NHS? <laughs> and uh, he's... <laughs> and, and, Genuinely, Paul, Paul did, he kited him around and then sprinted back to the car and got in. I remember go, like saying to the taxi driver, just go, 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 go. Mm. And then this guy was chasing us. He was chasing the taxi. Like he was still going for like, un- until we turned a corner, he was sprinting in the middle of the road after us, this pissed guy. Like I've just known people who like just go to the club on a night and they are explicitly looking for a fight. They just want to fight someone. Oh, and, and under yeah. the cover, under the cover of this environment, yeah, you can get into a fight. And no one's even going to ask questions about who started it or whatever. There's no justice system here. Just two drunk guys, one of them got into a fight. Yeah. One of them just decided there was going to be a fight tonight. It's what, it's like the two situations where you're going to have just a fight will break out is a school mm. where people shout fight and go like, where's the fight happening? Let's go and watch the fight. But the difference is they're children who don't have the physical strength to kill each other. Well, they might yeah. do, but it'll be pretty hardcore. And then when people are pissed, they'll just fight. Like a brawl will break out. And that yeah. would happen every time. Every time I would go out and roll, there'd be a fight. Not yeah. to the brain extent, but there'd be there'd be a fight. And there'd yeah. be the constant threat of violence. Booze just makes people so much more unpredictable. I just think people need to have the self-confidence to have sex and get into massive fights just randomly whenever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, WH Smith. If you, if you have a need to fight or to fuck, yeah. mediate that need through communicating uh-huh. with the people around you. If you're in H&M and you want to fight, just find someone there and go, do you want to fight me? Someone will eventually say yes. It's fundamental to British culture, though, Sean, and it's an evidence of your lack of patriotism that you want people to communicate. Binge drinking culture is fundamental to British society because misery and not communicating are fundamental to British society. Not saying people, anything. People yeah. can't... Conflict or sex, these are too difficult to navigate with words, unboozed. And then there, I think even when you're boozed, it's not that you become uninhibited to the point where you now could feel you can communicate. You will just start touching people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, it's not like yeah. people go, okay, finally, I've got past the nerves. No, it's just now you're going to mm. act like a creep and you feel like you've got an excuse. Sean, do we worry in our vitriol against British boozing that we are party poopers? Are we oh. killjoys projecting our own dislike of boozing into a cultural critique? It's just that we're party poopers. We've pooped a party. It fucking stinks. If I can be almost fatally honest, yeah. I think parties are good. I just think I like people party, should find yeah. more complicated ways of having fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think fun, yeah. booze makes mm. fun too simple. Nice. Booze, it's cheating. Get good. Fun needs to be complicated. It needs to be strived for. Do you know, you know <laughs> this whole idea of forced fun? And it's like really fun. And good vibes. It should be like, mm. it should be precarious, like kaplunk. It should be like a Jenga tower. Mm. It, re- it requires instinct, intuition, booze, 
cuts through all of that, right? It's a game shark for having a laugh. Cheaters don't deserve victory. And it's not really a victory, is it? No. That's why I think it's poetic justice they don't get to remember it. Because it's not true. That's why Complicated fun. It. Complicated fun creates long-lasting memories. Fun should be hard. Fun, sh- I think that is it. Mm. I think that is it. Fun re- should be more stressful. Yeah. And I think if I'm having fun, but I'm gripped by the fear that the fun could stop instantly, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta really have fun. Mm. I gotta start getting manic. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Lewis-Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. This episode contains an excerpt of John Blow's Amphion Angelicus with additional music from Sean Morley and Jack Lewis-Evans. William Malmesbury was voiced by Jordan Leith. Thank you for listening to Mandos and special thanks to those of you who support our work by sharing this episode on social media or supporting us at patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party where you will find a wealth of bonus content. Cheers. But not on the bus. If we don't complete, <laughs> that was the real. <laughs> I'm not putting that in the edit. <laughs> oh, that burp was horrible. I'm sorry. So funny. If it was just less gross. violent, <laughs> it could have stayed in. It was so disruptively gross. I might put it at the end after the music fades out. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And that will tell everyone that we really did down a big drink. <laughs> Why did we do that? <laughs> it would have been so easy to fake. We yeah, it could have easily faked that. Yes, commitment. Um, there was that first line that when I came off, I think you could definitely hear it in my voice. Yeah. He's just drank a large <laughs> cup of something. <laughs> Canonically milk. <laughs> yeah. Gross. That's, yeah, it's fucking disgusting. Milk drinkers. <laughs>